Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, It's Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, and that's page 995. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Father, we... Thank you for that moment which lies before us, that day when we are called, when we stand before the throne of glory, we behold our Redeemer face to face. Father, we long for that moment. We thank you that that moment will come, and we would ask tonight, Father, that as we look at your word and as we understand what is to come, that we would be ready that we would be waiting well for that moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do take your seats. I hope you can see sight of a handout, uh, which will help you as we go through tonight to know roughly where we're heading. And uh, do keep the Bibles open at our reading, Matthew 25, page 995 in the Church Bibles. There are lots of different kinds of waiting, 
Think of a, of a caffeine addict stumbling down the stairs first thing in the morning, uh, longing for that first cup of coffee, waiting for the kettle to boil. Uh, that is uh, one kind of waiting. Or perhaps the student who has an exam the next morning and they are waiting, preparing, cramming, worrying. Uh, that is another kind of waiting. Uh, or perhaps uh, think of a couple watching a, a glorious sunset, uh, savoring and enjoying every change of light and hue, lingering over every moment. That is another kind of waiting. Think of a school counting down to the Christmas holidays, just a few weeks to go. That is another kind of waiting. Or imagine it's your wedding day. The groom waiting at church, but the bride is late, very late. Imagine the uncle of the groom leaning forward and whispering in the groom's ear, how well do you know this girl? As the minutes tick by. As it happens, I don't have to imagine that particular scenario. Uh, my wife, Lorna, uh, shows me she left on time. Um, apparently, the traffic was terrible or something. Uh, but that is another kind of waiting. There are lots of different kinds of waiting. Matthew 25, that we've just heard read, is a chapter all about waiting. We looked at the first uh, two parts of that chapter uh, some months ago now, uh, back in May, I think. And we saw then that this whole chapter is about waiting, how we should be waiting for the return of Christ. And there is no bigger event in all of history to be thinking about, to be waiting for. Uh, Forget the coffee or the exams or the sunsets. This event is far bigger than anything else in our lives. And the question that Matthew 25 puts to us is this, how are we waiting for that great event. And we'll see tonight that in Matthew 25, there's a right way to wait and there is a wrong way to wait. For some who wait well, there will be a great reward. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. A wonderful blessing. But to others who do not wait well, he will say those terrible words in verse 41. Depart from me. The stakes are high, incredibly high. And so in this season of Advent, as we think about the return of Jesus, we must ask ourselves this question. How are we waiting? For some, I hope tonight will be a great encouragement as we think about our lives, as we compare it to what Matthew 25 says. I hope we'll be encouraged. Yes, we are waiting well. We are on track. We look forward to a wonderful uh, coming of the King. But there may be others here tonight who realize that we're not waiting well, that we have some things to sort out in our lives. How are we waiting? Well, let's dive into our text to find some of the ways that we should be waiting. And and first of all, I've got three points. First of all, you'll see in the handouts, uh, we see uh, the return of the king. Uh, Throughout Matthew 25, 
Jesus is described in various ways. He's described as uh, the groom coming back for his bride. He's described as the master away on a long journey. But here at the end of the chapter, he's described as the king who will return to rule over the world. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Tim reminded us of uh, Daniel 7 at the beginning of our time together, uh, a reference to the Son of Man. I think the same reference here in Matthew 25, that, that reference to the one who will come, who will rule over all nations, who will be the glorious one, having dominion and authority over everyone forever. Jesus is that Son of Man. He is the King who is coming, who will sit on the throne in rule over the world. And there is no escaping his rule, verse 32. All nations, all the nations will be gathered before him. This is a fearful and awesome picture that we are having painted for us. So often the world has a particular view of Jesus, perhaps the Christmas view of Jesus. Little baby Jesus, gentle and mild, lying in a manger, humble and loving and obedient. But one day, this man scorned by many, mocked and rejected, this man whose name is taken in vain all across this city today, this man will return in his true glory. And the world has never seen glory like this. The angels have from eternity past as they've bowed down before the throne of glory, worshiping the king, But there is a day when the true heavenly glory of the Son of Man will be revealed for all of us to see, face to face. And that moment will be awesome. The return of the King. I gather there is a huge excitement in New York today because... um, Will and Kate are um, meant to arrive for a three-day visit in New York and also in Washington. Uh, Thousands of people are expected to turn out to wish them well and to glimpse a sight of the royal couple. I heard uh, one lady being interviewed on on the TV, and she was um, desperate to get some tickets to a a basketball game because she had heard rumors that Will and Kate were going to come and watch um, the, the, uh, the sporting event, and she was desperate to be there to see a glimpse of the royal couple. Well, if there is such hysteria and hype over uh, that royal couple, just imagine what it will be like when the king of the universe returns in all of his glory, sitting on the one throne of power. And there'll be no need to fight over tickets, worrying about whether you'll see the action, because we're told everyone will be gathered around his throne. I was speaking to a good friend recently and we were talking about these kind of issues and about the return of Jesus and we were trying to work out this issue. Why is it that so often we find it hard to think about the return of the king? We were talking about how so often we go around our daily lives and we go from one thing to the next thing and the next thing and in the middle of our daily routines we so often don't think about this moment when the king returns and we're trying to work out why is it that we so quickly forget. If this moment is so glorious and and amazing, why is it that we forget? I wonder how we've been doing this week today. I wonder if we've thought about the return of Jesus today. 
I have it. I've been thinking about the sermon, but uh, often I don't think about the return of Jesus. Why is it that we forget? And I think one reason is that we just have far too small a view of what will happen when the king returns. The, 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 the thing in our diary tomorrow feels bigger. It feels more urgent, more pressing than that return. But let's be clear tonight that the world as we know it is not going to end with a, a nuclear war or because of global warming or because of some deadly virus. No, the world as we know it will end when this king returns. All the projects and plans and uh, patterns of our lives will come to a screeching halt the moment when this king is revealed in all his glory. And the glory of our projects and our plans, of our bank accounts, our house, our career, all the things that we put together around us in our lives, they will be nothing compared to the glory of the king when he returns. And so nothing matters more than waiting well for this king, being ready for his return. And just as an aside, that's, that's why we're so desperate, isn't it, to, to invite people to come to Carols by Candlelight. And not because we want some uh, lovely singing, although there will be lovely singing. Not because we want to feel um, that we've got a full house for the sake of it. No, we want to invite people because we know there's a king who's going to return. And we want the world to be ready for that moment. And so we invite our friends, we care about them, we want to hear about how to be ready for the king to come back. That's the return of the king. Uh, Next, uh, we see the verdict of the king. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I'm no expert, but I'm told that in, um, in first century Palestine, uh, shepherds often mixed up the goats and the sheep in one field. Uh, during the day, they would uh, mix them up and they would uh, graze together. And uh, at night, they would bring them home back to the stables and they would separate the goats from the sheep for the night. And I'm told that uh, at a distance, it's quite hard to tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. Again, I, I'm not an expert, but that's what I, I read. And it takes some skill, some discernment to, to work out uh, a sheep from a goat. But here, uh, the king does this discernment with ease. He takes this huge flock of all the nations gathered before the throne, and he expertly divides one from another, the sheep from the goats, into two groups. And what is the verdict for these two groups? Well, we've already seen it in verse 34. For the sheep, there is that wonderful verdict. Uh, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The other group, the the goats on his left, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm told that there's a, a line that runs down the uh, a whole uh, continent of North America. 
It's a line that runs down the Rocky Mountain Range. It's called the Great Divide. And when a raindrop falls, and it falls near the Great Divide, if it lands on one side of the Great Divide, it'll run down the mountain into a stream, into a river, and it'll run thousands of miles one way, and it'll end up in the Pacific Ocean. But if the raindrop lands just a few meters to the other side of the Great Divide, it'll run down the mountain into the streams and run thousands of miles the other way and end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And it is called the Great Divide. And here, if you like, we see a even, an even greater divide. As people who look so similar uh, on the surface, perhaps to the, those around us watching, sheep and the goats, who all sit in front of the throne of glory, who look as if they are the same, part of the same flock. When the king comes and announces his verdict, there will be a great divide. It'll be bigger than from the Pacific to the Atlantic. It'll be a divide between those who are with the king forever in his kingdom and those who are pushed away from him forever into darkness. That is the verdict of the king. I suppose this is tremendously politically incorrect. In our culture, we're told that we're, we're not allowed to label people and to separate people and to draw distinctions between people. We're told that everyone is equally valid in their own way of seeing the world and doing things. We're not allowed to pass judgment on other people. Well, that might be true for us humans, but there is one, the king of the universe, who has every right to distinguish and to draw boundaries and to separate. And when he returns, he will do just that. He will separate the sheep from the goats. That is the verdict of the king. If we believe this tonight, if we believe that there is a king and he will return and he will divide, then the question must be this. On what basis will this king make his division? Or to put it more personally, which group will I be in when the king returns? How can I know tonight if I will be a sheep or a goat when the king returns? It's a massive question. We have to ask that question. That is the central question of the whole passage. And that brings us to our, our final point. And we'll spend a bit more time on this tonight. That is the explanation of the king. So why are the sheep welcomed Verse 35 tells us, the king says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me some, something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. When did this happen? Because the sheep can't see the king. He's away. Well, verse 40 tells us, the king replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. But what does this mean? What is Jesus telling us? Is Jesus saying here that his decision concerning us about all of eternity is based on how good we have been? Is he saying that if we are kind enough 
if we give enough to charity, if we help enough homeless people and provide enough food for those who need it, then we will be welcomed into heaven. Is he saying that we have to rack up the brownie points with King Jesus to impress him with our lives? And if we get enough, then he will let us in. Is that what he's saying? That's certainly the view that many people have of Christianity. They think that Christianity is about being a good person, about looking after those around us, giving to charity, and God liking you and letting you into heaven. But this cannot be what Jesus means. This can't be the answer. It goes against the whole flow of Scripture. The whole Bible teaches us that we are not good enough. We do not match up to the king's standards. And when Jesus finishes speaking this, these words in Matthew 25, in, in, in 26, look at verse uh, 2 of 26. He then says, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. In two days' time, this will happen. And if getting into heaven was simply a matter of being good, then King Jesus did not need to die on a cross. And yet he does die. We need him to die for us. After all, how would we know if we've ever done enough? How would we know if we've been good enough to our neighbor, if we've handed out enough food and given enough money to charity? No, this can't be the right understanding of the king's explanation. So what is the explanation for this great divide? On what basis will he make his division? Well, to help us understand that, I've got two really crucial questions we need to ask the text, to understand what's going on. They're there in your handout, if you, over the page, if you see them. Uh, there's two questions. Uh, question A, uh, who are the brothers that Jesus talks about in verse 40? Uh, many people assume that these brothers are simply uh, anyone we meet or have access to. Uh, maybe a bit like uh, the word for neighbor. Uh, simply anyone we happen to rub shoulders with. But I think we need to realize that every time Matthew uses the word brother, he always means either our biological brother or our spiritual brother. He only ever means one of those two things. And so um, let me show you this. Um, Do glance back to Matthew chapter 12. Um, That's on page uh, 978 in the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, 978. Look at verse 47 of Matthew chapter 12. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see how Jesus, Jesus describes a brother? Someone who is part of the spiritual family, a follower of Christ. Uh, I've put a few more references down on the handout. Do, do chase those up later on. It's really important you see this for yourself. But I think Matthew always uses brother that way. And he doesn't use it in a more general sense of talking about anyone we happen to meet. 
Uh, the same point can be made, if you notice on the handout, about um, that little phrase, the least of these, talking about his disciples. Again, in Matthew, it's always talking about those who are following Jesus, not just uh, anyone in the world in general. And so here's the point. The actions of verse 40 are not just acts of kindness and support to people in general, but to disciples, uh, people who follow Jesus in particular. Now, please don't mishear me tonight. The Bible is crystal clear that as Christians, we must be people who love and care for and look out for the least, the lowly, the little ones of the world. I heard this morning about the Archbishop of Canterbury speaking out about the great problem of people who can't afford to feed themselves in this country, who are reliant on food banks. And he was saying, this isn't good enough. We have to find ways to look after the poor who can't feed themselves in this country. What are we going to do about it? And I agree with the Archbishop. We have to find ways to feed the poor and care for them. That is a right Christian response. But I don't think the particular focus of Matthew 25 is on how Christians should care for uh, the poor in general, uh, the needy in general. Well, that's who the brothers are. They are uh, the spiritual brothers of Jesus. Uh, the second key question for us is there in our handouts, uh, question B. Why do our actions towards our brothers matter so much? Or to put it another way, is this simply Jesus saying that uh, we have to earn brownie points with God to get into heaven? Well, no, because verse 40 gives us the answer. Look at verse 40 back in Matthew uh, chapter 25. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You did it for me. Or verse 45 makes the opposite point. Uh, verse 45 says, uh, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. In other words, our attitude towards the king is revealed by our attitude towards his people. You see, we, we can't see King Jesus now. He, he's in heaven, seated on his throne in glory. We, we can't see him physically. We can't relate to him in the same way we can relate to other human beings now in this life. And so we, we might wonder, uh, do I love Jesus? How can I know if I love him as I should? Well, one way we can tell, and there are lots of other ones, one way we can tell is how we feel about the followers of Jesus. If we love his followers then we love uh, the one who leads them. Uh, a few years ago, my sister went uh, traveling in the U.S. It was quite a special trip for her because uh, we were born in the States. Uh, we were, uh, I was there until I was six. Uh, she was eight when we left, and we've been living in this country ever since. And she went traveling sort of back down memory lane to visit lots of people that we hadn't seen for years and years. And she managed to um, put together a, a two-week trip where she stayed um, every night with someone different who um, had been friends of the family, um, particularly friends that my parents had known really well. And lots of the people uh, she didn't actually remember or recognize, um, some she hadn't even met. But she was overwhelmed by the welcome she received from these people time and again. She was welcomed into their homes. She was blessed and cared for and fed and had long, lovely conversations with people. 
And most of them she hadn't even met before. Why did these people take her into their homes and bless her and love her? Because she had the family name. She was the daughter of our parents. And these dear friends in the States who knew my parents were very glad to bless and care for those who had the family name, including my sister, who was blessed and loved. And that is, I think, just a glimpse of what is going on here. If, if we have met and if we love and if we know King Jesus, if we are overwhelmed at his love for us shown on the cross as he died for us in our place, if we have experienced that love in our hearts, then we will also love those who have the family name, other Christians who follow King Jesus. That's the explanation of the king. This is not um, about earning brownie points to weave our way into heaven. This is not about being good enough for King Jesus to like us and love us. No, first and foremost, this passage asks us this question. Do we love the king? Are we yearning to be with the king? Are we longing for him to return? Do we delight and love in all that he's done for us? And we know that by the way we treat his family, those who also follow the king. Well, let me finish with that question I began with at the beginning. I asked us, how are we waiting as we wait for King Jesus to come back? And just two quick thoughts for us as we finish. Uh, To wait well means to love and live for Jesus. Uh, The chief priests and the elders are a good example of how not to wait well in this context. Uh, If you flick forward to Matthew 26, after they've heard this from Jesus, they they plot in verse 4, we're told, that they are looking for a way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. They are a picture of people who do not love the king. They are a picture of people who will come across someone who in just a few days' time will be bound and captive by the Romans. This one will be stripped naked. He will be left abandoned without friends. He will be thirsty. He will be oppressed and beaten. And these chief priests and elders, will they, will they help him? Will they reach down and give him a drink of water? No, they will simply cry, crucify, crucify. They are people who do not love the king and who do not want to help the king. And they are people who, as we read through the New Testament, persecute those who follow the king. We read that in Acts and elsewhere. So to wait well means to love and live for Jesus. And it's good for us at this time of Advent just to to ask ourselves that question. Do I, do I love Jesus? Have I allowed my heart to slip into simply routines? Do I come to church simply because that's what I do on a Sunday or a small group? Do I come to my times in the morning of prayer and reading the Bible? Do I come to them longing to be with the one I love? Or are they simply routines in my heart? Are we so busy rushing around, running our lives that we've forgotten that the most important thing is to love the king 
and to long for his return. Uh, To wait well means to love and live for Jesus. And also, as we close, to wait well means to love and live for Jesus' followers. Uh, It means all kinds of things. It means caring for them practically. Uh, It means maybe making meals for them, dropping by to say hello, ringing up to see if they're okay, offering lifts, looking after children. It means caring for our brothers and sisters spiritually, praying for them, talking to them, opening up scripture with them. Small groups are a great place to do this, to care for those who bear the name of Jesus, uh, to commit to coming, not just because it suits us, but because we can care and love others. In a church this size, it's overwhelming. Who can I love? It's it's massive. But in a small group, we have a, a group of people who we can get to know really well. We can share the highs and lows of life. And in that context, we can really minister love and service and care. As we saw in 1 Peter over these last few weeks, we need to stand together as Christians as the world grows increasingly hostile to those who bear the name of Jesus. And so it'll mean standing with our brothers and sisters if they are persecuted. I put a few links there at the bottom of the handouts um, to various ways in which you can find out more about Christians who are being persecuted. If you haven't come across Prayer Mate, it's a great app if you use apps. Um, on your iPad or device, whatever it is. Um, It it helps you to pray in lots of ways, but it it gives you, if you want, uh, daily feeds into various websites to give you information about Christians who are being persecuted. You can pray uh, day in, day out for those who bear the name of Jesus. I put down two websites, the the Barnabas Fund and Open Doors. Uh, Those websites are full of information about uh, our brothers and sisters around the world who bear the name of Jesus, who are being persecuted, who are suffering, who need our help uh, by prayer, uh, practically uh, by giving money, um, the ways that we can serve as well. We need to develop a, a, a perspective of, of those who are nearby and those who are far away, those who bear the name of Jesus, who need our love and our care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the king of the world, King Jesus, came the first time as a baby and a man in weakness and humility. He came to die on a cross to rescue us, to do what we could not do, which was to make us perfect in your sight. And Father, as we think about the second coming of this king, the time when he comes in his glory, please, may we not take our eyes off that moment. May we love him. May we live for him. And may we love those who bear the family name, who are Christians, who are disciples of Christ. We pray this for your glory. Amen.